with me in chapter 1, the second part of verse 18, which I really believe should be a part of verse 19. Remember, the verses were added later. They're not inspired. The text is. Evidently, a man named Stephanus, a Parisian, was the one who, who versified the Bible. And tradition tells us that he was on a horse, and every time his horse hit a bump, his pen went down, and that's where the verses went. So if you would, look with me in verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Beautiful words, on your account. That's the way we have to think in the church. For your, for your welfare, on your account, he says. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We see Paul's heart. Uh, we see Paul's example we see Paul's admonitions, and this is a text designed to transform us by your Spirit. We ask that you would do that. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness today. We need that today, Lord, for the glory of your Son's name. Amen. There was a Broadway play a few years back that was approaching opening night, and things were a disaster. The director was getting really uptight. And then he had an epiphany. He recognized that the lead actress couldn't carry out her role. But the supporting actress could. And so the next day he came to rehearsals and he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to switch out parts. The lead actress is now going to play the role of the supporting actress. And the supporting actress is going to play the role of the lead actress. Of course, that was upsetting to the former lead actress. But the play came together immediately. It became electric. And it ended up being a massive success. Even the former lead actress came to realize it was the right move. Analogously, the world will not be right. Our relationships won't be right or nothing else. Until we see that our main problem is that we've taken the lead role in our lives. And we weren't designed to do so. We were not called, we're not designed, we're not equipped to play the lead role. We can't pull it off. And until we recognize that Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, is the lead role in our lives, our lives will never flourish. They will never flourish. But that's how Paul's joy could be so resilient in the midst of chains. 
Now think about that. He has no idea what his verdict's going to be before Caesar. The Caesar was Nero at the time, by the way. And yet there was joy, unspeakable joy, because he knew Jesus gets the lead role. And because of that, he also knew that God's providential plan was centered on that reality. Which meant that whatever happens to, G, uh, to Paul would just only serve to advance that plan. How freeing is that? And that's why we can see at the very first part of this passage, his joy in living for Christ's honor. Notice in verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, here's the question. Most of us have never faced this kind of difficult situation. We're, we've all faced difficult situations. Some of you are facing extraordinarily difficult and painful situations even now. But how can Paul be so joyfully confident that his chains will result in his deliverance? Well, the answer to that question requires us to answer what he means by deliverance. Now, there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled on that. Scholars have gone around and around for centuries on what he means by deliverance. I think Paul is being intentionally ambiguous. I think it's a broad term. If God delivers him from execution, then Paul has been delivered, correct? But if God delivers him to Jesus through execution, then he's been delivered as well. And in that case, Paul is as free in chains as any person here Who's outside of chains. But the most common use of the word deliverance here. The, the word is soteria, by the way. Maybe you've heard the term soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. Well, that's the word that's being used here. The most common use of it in Paul's writings is salvation in the spiritual sense. Salvation in the eschatological sense, if you will. Of course, we know that Paul has already been delivered from the penalty of sin. That is mankind's biggest problem and dilemma. We are under the penalty of sin. There may be some here today who, who don't understand the gospel. And the gospel is simply this. We deserve death. Physical death. Spiritual death separated from God. And eternal death separated from God for all eternity under judgment. We deserve that. And yet God in his grace and mercy has provided a way to judge our sin and save us the sinner. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute. And Jesus Christ took the penalty. He paid the penalty on the cross. And God delivered him. Have you ever thought about that? When Christ was raised from the grave, that was Jesus, our substitute's deliverance. And so Christ is delivered. And when we put our faith in Jesus, our repentant faith in Jesus, we experience the deliverance that he experienced in his resurrection. Well, Paul has already experienced that, that deliverance from the penalty of sin. But the deliverance from the power of sin, which is our sanctification, is also part of this deliverance. And in that sense, 
Paul anticipates salvation from anything that would tempt him from shaming his own name or Christ's name by refusing to be bold in his witness when those opportunities arose. I mean, notice in verse 20, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So that seems to be the emphasis there as he speaks about his deliverance. He's not concerned about whether he's going to live or die. He's concerned about whether he will glorify and honor Christ when the temptations to not to do so arise, like standing before Nero. Now, Paul sees his deliverance being accomplished by two means. You see it right there in the text. First, the prayers of God's people. He says, for I know that through your prayers... And so we see here Paul's inspired view of prayer. Now, there was no one who's ever walked the earth who had a better understanding of the divine sovereignty than the Apostle Paul. Read Romans 9 sometime if you ever question Paul's view of divine sovereignty. And yet Paul recognizes that the God who ordains the ends also ordains the means. And I believe it's one of the real blights on the American church is that largely we are prayerless. And when we pray, we focus on temporal things. And yet Paul recognizes that his joy, his confidence is largely based on the fact that the Philippians are praying for him. It's remarkable. And Paul seems to suggest, now this may not fit your theology, but it's here in the text, that the help of the Spirit is in some way contingent on their prayers. Now think about that. Is God sovereign? Yes. Has he declared the end from the beginning? Yes, according to Isaiah, he has. And yet, it appears there are certain things God won't do unless God's people pray. I don't understand the mystery there. I just know this. We are... We are responsible and God is sovereign. And those two truths do not contradict themselves. And note, he describes the spirit here as the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? Well, I believe the reason he describes the spirit as the spirit of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when the father... Uh, when we think in terms of the triune God, we think in terms of the Father being the one who, be, who begets. The Son is the one who's generated, begotten, eternally so. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. That is Trinitarian theology right there. But it's rare that he describes the Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, what is he thinking in terms of here? Well, I think that Paul has in his mind... That the Spirit has come for one central purpose. And that is to glorify the Son. That's exactly what Jesus said in John. The Spirit has come to glorify the Son. And Paul's aspirations, his hopes, his life is grounded by that reality. That the Spirit will ensure that Christ will be preeminent in all things when all is said and done. And because he knows that that's going to come to fruition, 
what happens to him will fall within that plan no matter what happens. And for that he rejoices. Now keep in mind, he does not know yet that he's going to be exonerated. He will. In fact, scholars believe that Paul will go on to preach about another six years. He will have about six more years in his ministry before he's arrested again and put in the maritime prison. And that time, in 2 Timothy, we read about that, but he will be beheaded. All he knows at this point, and most of us can't even envision this, unless you've been in war or a plane in turbulence. All he knows that he is staring death in the face. That's all he knows. And he desires two things. One, he wants to get out of there. No, that's not what it says. He wants to avoid shame in refusing to confess Christ when he stands before Caesar or anyone else. Or when those guards are chained to him as we saw last week. Secondly, that he will have full courage to honor Christ. That's what the verse says, verse 20. Now, this word honor is, is, a, is, a, is a beautiful word. It literally means to enlarge. Now, how do you enlarge Jesus Christ? He is fully God, fully man in one person. As God, he is infinite in his perfections. All right? And as man, he is perfect. He is without blemish, holy, blameless, and undefiled. So how, how can you enlarge a person who is fully God and fully man? Well, in one sense, you can't. But in another sense, we can enlarge him like a telescope enlarges a planet. You look at Jupiter or Venus or some other planet, and to the naked eye, that planet looks very small, doesn't it? But when you put that telescope up to your eye, it brings it to scale, doesn't it? Do you know that Jesus Christ, to most people in this culture, seems very small? I mean, just look at the cultural sins. Look at the rebellion. Look at the godlessness, the wickedness that is so rampant in our culture. And our role as Christians is to enlarge him like a telescope enlarges a massive planet. So that the culture, the world can see him for who he is. That is Paul's desire. It's, it's just remarkable. And, and it's, he says, in fact, it was his eager expectations. And it's his hope. It's not that his circumstances would change. I'm sure he had a preference about his circumstances. But it's that he would not shame Jesus. And that he would honor Jesus when the occasions arose. In the midst of his circumstances. Now, today, whatever your circumstances are. And I know... That I know about many of your circumstances, and many of you I don't, but I can venture to say in a fallen world, all of us are in some way in difficult and painful circumstances. And we need to allow this text to serve as a means of grace, to reorient us back to Paul's aspirations, 
so that no matter what your circumstances are, maybe you're in a difficult marriage, maybe you have children who've gone rebellious, maybe you have health issues, financial issues, maybe there are real stresses and pressures in your life. Paul was in prison, enchained, awaiting potential death. And he had one concern, that he would not shame Christ and that he would honor him. And so when I read that, I believe the Spirit is saying to me, to you, if this is not where you are, you need to repent and ask God the Spirit to reorient you to this perspective. But that won't happen unless you can increasingly say, unless we can increasingly say with Paul, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beautiful, beautiful truth there. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London, once said, there are some texts in the Bible that are so big that if the preacher did nothing but just repeat the text, the entire sermon, you'd have a great sermon. This is one of those texts. Now, the word is, in your translation, to live is Christ. It's not there in the original language. It was put there by the translators for readability. And it's certainly more readable to say to live is Christ. But I think we miss some of the, the gravity of what he's saying by putting in that verb. Literally, to live Christ. To live Christ. That's what he's literally saying today. Paul is consumed with the one who interrupted his life on the road to Damascus and exchanged the leading role in his life from Paul to himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has now taken the lead role in the apostle's life. Indeed, from the same prison cell, virtually at the same time, he will write in Colossians 3, verse 4, Christ is our life. That's Christianity. That's basic Christianity. If you can't say that today, you're not a Christian. No matter what you confess and profess. Christ is our life. Earlier, some five years earlier, he said to the Galatians, or a decade earlier for that matter, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. And all of us must ask this question as we read this. What would you fill in that blank? To live is what? To live is entertainment. To live is television, movies. To live is vacation. To live is building up my portfolio. To live is cars, houses. To live is sensual pleasure. To live is relationships. To live is to be popular. To be considered significant. And of course, if anything created falls in that blank... Not only do you have a false Messiah, 
when death comes, it will be the loss of everything. Everything. There's a really sad account of Elizabeth I. As she was dying, she was crying out to her personal assistant. Oh my God, it is over. I have come to the end. The end of it. The end. Those were her last words. Because she knew she was losing everything. And she was dying. And that's the testimony of every person whose life isn't Christ. Doesn't mean we have to think about Christ and talk about Christ in every conversation, specifically and directly. Doesn't mean we don't think about other things, in other words. But it does mean that when we think about these things, we do it in the context of Jesus as our life. You never get a sabbatical from Jesus as your life. No vacation, no weekend. For the Christian, Jesus is always our life. So for me to be married, Christ. For me to have children, Christ. For me to play, to work, Christ. For me to interact with my neighbor, Christ. For me to hang out with my friends, Christ. For me to go on the internet, Christ. And it's only for that reason that Paul can add to die as gain. Again, that word is is not in the original. To die, gain. To live, Christ. To die, gain. Gain means to receive a great profit, doesn't it? Death is gain for Paul, not because he's suicidal. Nor because he's a masochist or an escapist. What I mean by that is someone whose pain in this life is so great they just want to check out. All right? That's not why death is gained for him. Death is gained for Paul because he knows that when he dies, death will deliver him into the full presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no soul sleep, in other words. If there were soul sleep, death would not be gained. He would rather remain in his body because at least he gets to consciously experience Christ somewhat in this body. But death is gained because immediately when he dies, he's in the presence of Christ. So his whole life could be summed up as the progressive abandonment of everything else in the interest and the pursuit of increasingly experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. Samuel Rutherford, the great 17th century Scottish preacher, great leader in that time in Europe. He said, build your nest in no tree here. On earth, because God has sold the entire forest to death. That's profound. Put your treasures in heaven, in heavenly places. That's the only way to live, and it's the only way to die. And the most important thing about heaven, according to Paul, is not that it's the streets of gold. Or that you get reunited with your loved ones. Now that's beautiful. And that's going to be a glorious, glorious fruit of heaven. We get reunited with our loved ones that are in heaven. Not everyone goes to heaven, by the way. Only those who are in Christ. 
But for Paul, the most beautiful thing about heaven is he will be able to experience God in the face of Christ without the encumbrances of his sin. Sin which distorts the image. Uh, Sin which eclipses his beauty and his glory to us. But this creates in Paul a tension as well. When I read these texts and I say, man, Paul had a tension here. And if my tension is not conformed to his tension, I need to adjust my life through repentance and faith. He says, if I am to live in this flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's the purpose of life. Fruitful labor for the kingdom. That's it. We're not the lead actor. Jesus is the lead role. Got that? We're just supporting cast. And so if he's going to remain in the flesh, it's for fruitful labor. It's not for entertainment. It's for not for hedonistic pleasures. And he says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul knows that Caesar's verdict, Nero's verdict, could very well end his life. Maybe by crucifixion. Maybe by beheading. And yet he so anticipates seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in this way, without the encumbrances of sin, that to remain here would almost be a disappointment for him. It's remarkable. But if he is acquitted, it will allow him to continue in his fruitful, fruitful labor for the glory of Christ and for the benefit of Christ's church. Here's the question that I would submit to you as I think about this passage. Why would you opt for ongoing life or imminent death? I didn't ask which one would you choose. We don't have a choice. God is sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over our death. That's why abortion, euthanasia, and all these kind of deals are wicked. We do not have autonomy over our lives. God does. So I'm not asking you which would you choose, but why would you choose it? Why would you choose ongoing life, or why would you choose imminent death if you could make the choice? Maybe you would choose life because... It keeps you entertained somewhat with some degree of comfort and pleasure. And death is such a mystery to you, you don't really want to encounter that. It's a mystery. It's a scary mystery. So you would choose life. You're vaguely entertained. You're vaguely comforted. You like this life. Or maybe you would choose imminent death. Maybe your circumstances are so difficult that you know, or you believe at least, that when you die, at least your troubles are over. Or maybe your pain will be numbed after your death. But if those are the reasons that you would choose either life or death, it reveals a heart that's enslaved to the here and now. All right? And that is not freedom. That is not freedom. But Paul the prisoner was free because he gets Jesus either way. Do you see that freedom there? To live is Jesus, to die is more Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
To live is Jesus, to die is more Jesus. And that leads him to say, verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. He doesn't get the choice. He's just being hypothetical for our benefit. He's wanting us to see things the way he sees things as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit as an apostle. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. How comforting is that for those of you who have lost loved ones recently in Christ? For those of you who have believing loved ones who have died, how comforting is that? For that is far better. Paul says to depart, to die, is far better for those in Christ. The desire to to be in the presence of Christ, I believe, is a very healthy longing for the believer. I think as we age and as we grow in grace, we long more and more to be in his presence. That's one of the evidences of our salvation. But let me say this as well. Because I heard recently someone tell another person who was grieving a death that they didn't need to grieve. They didn't need to cry. And I will submit to you, based on the authority of Scripture, that mourning the loss of our loved ones is right. It's not wrong. It is right. Yes, if our loved one is a believer, it is far better for them. That's what Paul says. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope when we lose our loved ones in Christ. It is far better for them. And yet we still grieve. Jesus gives us permission to grieve. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus and it says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He's weeping over death. Though he knows Lazarus will be raised from the grave, he's weeping over death. I want you to consider this passage from chapter 2. Just flip over there just a second. Verse 26. Paul says to die is is better. But notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 26. He, speaking of Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. Epaphroditus almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Do you see the tension there? If Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have mourned with sorrow upon sorrow. But it would have been far better for Epaphroditus. So that's the tension. We, we, we can grieve because death is an enemy, but we can grieve in hope. For it is far better for those who have died in Jesus Christ. Paul knows that. But as he considers the question of life or death, he concludes that at this time, it is far better that he remain in this life for the sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom. That brings us to the second point, joy in living for others' joy. Notice with me in verse 24, he says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Note the, con, the contrast here. 
between what is far better, verse 23, his death, and what's more necessary, verse 24. There's a tension there, isn't there? And what's more necessary pertains to the Philippians' spiritual welfare. As far as personal benefit goes, death wins hands down. But then there's the church who still needs his ministry. And for parents, there are children who still need their, our ministry. There are people who still need our ministry. And with that in mind, verse 25, notice. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith. I love that. We'll come back to it. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so if death here is a glorious possession of Jesus, life for Paul is a glorious bearing of fruit. Fruitful labor. And what's challenging here about what Paul says is how deeply it's connected with the well-being of the church. So again, this isn't just given to us to satisfy our historical itch. How deeply concerned are you with the well-being of the church? Do you have the same commitments as the Apostle Paul? You say, well, I'm not an apostle. But how many times does Paul tell us to imitate him as he imitates Christ? And so his example is an inspired model for us all. So that if we're not following that example, we must repent and by faith realign and readjust our lives. Where is your fruitful labor today? Everybody has fruitful labor. For some, it's watching Netflix Binge watching. I think that's the new term. I, I hate that term. Binge watching. That means you have no control. For some, it's binge playing video games. Everybody is committed to something that's ultimate in their lives. And Paul says, when Christ is your life, it will reflect itself in investing in who Jesus is investing in. And I love the way he describes their spiritual well-being. For their progress and joy in the faith. Christ is not satisfied that you got saved 25 years ago. That you prayed a prayer. That you walked denial. One of the evidences that you will be saved is your desire to progress in the faith. To grow in grace. To grow in love. To grow in maturity. Conformity to Christ. And notice, joy in the faith. Have you ever met a joyless Christian? Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. I know some Christians, they're better described as complaining Christians. Paul says, joy in the faith. That is what he is laboring for. This is the Christian life. Everything else is a parody. Joy in the faith. And some of the meanest people on the planet are joyless Christians. Because they have too much God in them to enjoy their sin. But they have too much sin in themselves to enjoy God. 
But the central lesson here, Paul's deepest hope for his future turns not on what happens to him, but on these people, these converts. And what a goal for our lives. Notice, he says, that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. You can look at me, Paul says, and have ample cause to glorify Jesus, to worship Jesus, to praise Jesus, to love Jesus. You can look at my life. You can look at my character. You can look at my commitments. You can look at my love. You can look at my gospel and have ample cause to glory in Jesus. Can, can that be said of us? Well, let's wrap this up. Paul is about to turn his focus from his situation in Rome to their situation in Philippi. He makes that transition in verse 27. Next time we gather on this. And and he'll speak first and foremost of their own suffering. Their own persecution. They haven't experienced anything like Paul. It's a greater to lesser argument. But they're suffering themselves. They're being uh, experiencing persecution themselves. And Paul has shown them how to view... They're suffering by using himself as an example. We saw last week. He said, look, I'm in prison, but look what's happening. I've had an opportunity to take the gospel into him, to Caesar's house. I would have never had that opportunity had I not been arrested. It's also encouraged the brothers who were silent and sheepish about evangelizing to be more bold in their faith. And today, he's given them a perspective that allows them to see life or death as a no-lose proposition. It's win-win for the believer. Indeed, the more we can learn to say with Paul, and, and this will be a great prayer to pray all week for you and for each of us, the more we can say with Paul to live is Christ, the more our hearts will be set free from our selfish, self-absorbed, miserable existences. But until we do, self-interest will rule. And if it becomes the ultimate ruler, devastation. Devastation. Self-rule bats a thousand. It's undefeated. If you let it rule, there's no exceptions. There's a great story, David Livingston. I, I have heard and Appreciated, respected David Livingston, the missionary to Africa for some years. But I went to Zambia three or four years ago, and, and he did a lot of ministry in Zambia. He was the one that discovered, at least he was the first European to discover. Uh, I think the Africans would have been shocked that he discovered Victoria Falls. Uh, they knew it was there before he, uh, he did. But he, he's the one that named it Victoria Falls after Queen Victoria. And he was a, a, just a, a, a wonderful missionary. He loved the Africans. In fact, when he died, they, they knew they had to ship his body back to, to England. But what they did, they cut out his heart. And they buried it next to a tree. And then they shipped his body back to England. That was their way of showing love for Livingston. So <clears throat> the day of the funeral, there were thousands upon thousands of people lined up along the road in Westminster Abbey. And they're taking his body down that road for the burial service. 
And in the midst of the crowd, there was this man dressed in shabbily, just shabby clothes, very poor, impoverished, broken. And the man standing behind him was a pastor. And as Livingston's body went by, the pastor could hear this man saying, You were right, Davy. You were right, Davy. And so he asked the man what he meant by that. And the man said, David Livingstone and I grew up together. Same church, same Sunday school. And when I got to be 18 years old, I went to Livingston and I said, Davy, I'm leaving the church. I'm going to go out and make some money. Someday I'll come back. Someday I'll be a real Christian. But first, I want to make my mark on the world. And Livingston said, there's no way to truly live outside of Jesus Christ. There's no way to truly live outside of Jesus Christ. That is a message to to us all. There's no way. He says, you're making a terrible mistake. And I said to him, we'll find out. And I went my own way all my life. And now I understand. David Livingston is right. Indeed. To live. Paul says to truly live. Is Christ. Christ in the lead role. You in the supporting role. How would that change our marriages if you believed that? It's not about me. It's not about my happiness. It's not about my rights. How would it change our churches? Christ the lead role in your marriage. Christ the lead role in your parenting. Christ the lead role in your career. And in your discretionary time. Is that where you are this morning? To live in my marriage, Christ. To parent, Christ. To work, to play, to go to school, to hang out with my friends, Christ. That's what this text is saying to us today. It's here for our sanctification. It's here for our enjoyment in God. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for this church, my prayer for me, for every Christian here, is to be able to progressively say to live as Christ. Any other approach to life is a phantom. It's a lie. It's a deception. As David Livingston told this fellow, there's no way to truly live outside of Jesus Christ. Illumine us to that reality. Give us the faith to believe it, Lord. And Father, there's any here today that, it, that are still non-committal. I pray the gospel of this text would convict them and woo them to Christ so that Christ could be their life. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.